Alice in Wonderland, 1951. Long before he had a studio with his name on it, one of Walt's earliest credits is directing a silent short titled Alice's Wonderland in 1923 that merges live-action and animation footage. His fascination with the character and dreamlike world led to many shorts and animations across the 20s, making the eventual Disney version adaptation no surprise. His interest in adapting the story into a feature film precedes even Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, but the project was shelved until the studio restabilized after the war. Disney is incredibly well known for staking claim on stories and fairy tales and attempting to plant a flag and having the canon version, and the staying power of Alice is no exception, as Walt sued competing adaptations releases ahead of the film's release, and even still the legacy holds, especially following the rampant box office success of the 2010 live-action version. As inevitable as Disney's Alice might have been, it greatly benefits from its creation happening when it did. The classic Disney style arrives the year prior when Cinderella perfectly synchronizes the hyper-real and cartoon aesthetics, and directors Geronimi, Jackson, and Lusk show what they learned from a near decade spent creating anthology films when directing and structuring Alice. Effectively pulling from the source material, the film is structured around a series of vignettes as the titular character follows March Hare down the rabbit hole and through several bizarre landscapes in Wonderland. While being stronger than any package film visually, there are many similarities in how the film paces disconnected occurrences, linked only by Alice being the center of them until her patience is exhausted and she moves on, a perfect narrative device that keeps the film moving. Alice is instantly characterized as she ignores her history lesson and instead begins describing her perfect world. Books would only be pictures and there would be no sense but nonsense. She goes on to sing about this dream world, alluding to many events that will be seen in Wonderland, such as talking flowers and animals and clothes, one of which she sees as the song ends. When March Hare shouts that he is running dreadfully late, her only concern is what he could be late for, and she decides to find out, following down the rabbit hole. The film begins in a serene green field, flush with colorful flowers that Alice runs through, a castle in the distance behind her. The sequence in which she falls into Wonderland perfectly upends that sense of place and reality. At first, Alice seems to enter full darkness, lit from below for a few eerie seconds until she reaches out and lights a lamp, only to drift past and below it as it reveals the distorted walls around her, the walls' colors changing as she descends further. She passes a mirror that reflects her floating upward and maybe my favorite shot of the movie, but true to her nature, none of this phases her. She happily plucks a book from a desk on her way down and relaxes in a rocking chair until it tips her back out. This distorted reality is fully seen as she reaches the bottom, now herself upside down, chasing the rabbit again through backgrounds that feel like static images from funhouse mirrors. She opens a series of stacked doors and crawls through the remaining opening into a room fully distinct from the last, and in under 10 minutes the film has fully established the rule set, or lack thereof, that it will operate on as she moves from space to space, little to no justification for how, why, or where. The film utilizes scale and size transformation to make the composition of many of its segments feel dynamic, and this is established early as Alice is stopped by a locked door and the doorknob speaks and recommends that she drink what is in a nearby bottle. The drink makes her shrink down, the nearby table becoming too tall to scale for the key she now needs, so she eats a snack that makes her grow too large for the room. This prompts her to cry, which floods the room with a deep blue color against the saturated walls. The doorknob calms her long enough for her to drink what remains in the bottle, and she shrinks down and falls inside, and the bottle drifts through the doorknob's keyhole and into the next scene, a darker and more vicious sea. The following segments are rooted more in surreal comedy than Alice herself, making them feel more like tangents than stops on her journey. She floats past a dodo in a coat that directs others to pace in circles to dry off when the tide is out, only for the tide to rush back in, making their task Sisyphean. Alice notes this before moving on and meeting Tweedledee and Tweedledum, who regale her with the story of The Walrus and the Carpenter, in a sequence that feels more of the 40s package films than of this feature. She gets bored of these two and moves on to find the March Hare near his home, and when exploring it, Alice manages to find another snack that makes her grow large, and she gets trapped inside the house, her limbs bursting from the walls and windows. 
The visual of Alice stuck in the house is striking and charming, and the sequence of March Hare and the Dodo trying to remove her is fun as the film further revels in the Hare's intense anxiety. Alice, aggravated, eventually solves her own problem when she eats a carrot from the Hare's garden that shrinks her once more. Alice's lack of patience for fast-talking, witty characters in this film feels almost incongruous to the legacy the film has sustained itself. Alice's arc in the film is that she gets deeply annoyed by what she thought she wanted, and the film makes these moments successfully annoying, albeit funny, due to their brief time spent on screen, which is a large part of what the 2010 movie misunderstands. This is showcased in the following two sequences in which Alice meets personable flowers, like she asked for in her opening song, and a smoking caterpillar who blows smoke letters to compliment his speech. After these scenes, she tries again to return to her natural size and succeeds, but not before reaching her largest size and allowing the studio to sell this transformation with vivid details on her face juxtaposed to a bird whose nest she uprooted from a tree. In these woods, she meets the Cheshire Cat, who like many characters will reappear across the series of vignettes, but whose narrative presence feels more active, which helps tie the film together to be more cohesive compared to early package films. He too speaks in nonsense and can vanish and reappear, but his chaotic energy pushes the film forward and ultimately leads Alice where she needs to be, even if his language aggravates her, and in this first scene, he points her in the direction of the Mad Hatter. The quirky wit of the source material is certainly not for everyone, and again, I think the film succeeds on making these characters annoyances that are only fun to watch because it is in small bursts, but through this moderation I find the Mad Hatter segment incredibly winning, in large part due to how fluid and vibrant the animation of items transforming is. Alice finds herself handed a cup of tea only not to get to drink it several times, and some of these cups are poured directly out of a pot, alongside the saucer and sugar cubes by the White Rabbit. The energy of the scene is easy to get caught up and enjoy, and before it wrings itself dry, the March Hare arrives and becomes a new target for the Hatter's bits, destroying his pocket watch by filling it with food items. Fed up with this exchange, the March Hare leaves and Alice, feeling the same, decides to find her way home. Quickly, Alice finds herself lost in the woods, and tries to appreciate the strange animals around her and ask for directions until feeling defeated. She sings Very Good Advice, a somber ballad about how her worst habits bring her into situations like this. It is through this song she gets a coming-of-age moment driven by self-reflection, questioning her wants at the top of the film now that she has seen them fulfilled to absurd and unpleasant ends. After her song, the forest fades away and the treasure cat returns to help her, however obtuse he may be in doing so. He opens a shortcut to the queen's palace and suggests Alice ask her for assistance, taking the film to its final location and set pieces. The Queen of Hearts is the primary source of conflict now that Alice wishes to return home. Arriving outside her castle, Alice sees several card soldiers painting white roses red, stating they planted the wrong ones, and she helps them. The movement of the paint leaving and trailing the brushes and dripping from the roses is incredible, the red creating a striking and vibrant sugary hue that pops against the grey walls and dour sky above, properly matching the demeanor of the Queen. After this sequence, more cards march out from the castle in a wide shot that showcases immense depth and scale with the use of perspective and shadows. The March Hare arrives right on time, as do the Queen and King. The Queen notices one rose shows white and explodes, punishing the cards responsible to lose their heads, and once she notices Alice, she challenges her to a game of croquet in which the world and her subjects have been to give her a perfect score and to give Alice nothing. The Cheshire Cat appears again, using his intermittent existence to trick the Queen into falling over, only for Alice to appear as the person to blame and behead, but the King insists she go to a trial first. The penultimate sequence of the film is Alice's trial, featured in another room that is drawn in an absurd perspective that dramatizes scale between Alice's position and the Queen above her. This sequence, like the best parts of the film, are driven by sharp dialogue and vocal performances, but the best part of the charm of the classic Disney style is the personality and facial expressions. The Queen exists in a tradition of characters that are more exaggerated for comedic effect, which can be seen in how her mouth becomes the entirety of her head when screaming. But in the 1950s, there begins a shift where even more lifelike leads get more comedic personalities, but not at a significant cost of detail. 
The crux of this film is Alice's charm and how her lack of patience translates to the audience. A Disney film being led by a child who rolls her eyes and pouts is incredibly effective and refreshing at this point in their filmography. Alice's charm is on screen from scene one, where she interacts with her older sister who moves and emotes in a way that adheres more to the lifelike hyper-real in such a way that inherently defines this style as that of childish emotions. These techniques initially preserved for villains and comedic relief. This continues with the classic Disney style as Alice is directly followed by Peter Pan, in which the children's mother emotes similarly to Alice's older sister. In line with this evolution, Cinderella is allowed to bliss out after learning her date at the ball was a prince through a comedic beat that would not be afforded to a princess lead in the formalist era. The trial goes as expected as the Queen's way is the only way, but Alice's emotions can no longer be contained and she uses her leftover snacks to grow the size of the room and shout down the Queen and insult her in a moment of catharsis before she shrinks again. She escapes and the cards give chase in a frantic sequence, several cards falling over in a row that Alice runs up like a ramp that throws her into another sequence entirely. A return of the Dodo Circle march, including characters from the Walrus and the Carpenter. Passing along beach, she is dragged by the Mag Hatter into a giant cup of tea, and when she surfaces, she has returned to the turbulent waters from the first half of the film, where the caterpillar covers her in smoke and, in a seamless transition, she is no longer floating but running through a hazy corridor toward the talking doorknob. The direction of this film shines in this final chase as it fully utilizes the malleability of Wonderland itself and recognizes what is available when it can lean on the audience's recollection of these vignettes. Alice asks to be let out before the queen catches her, but the doorknob insists that she already is, revealing in a stellar frame that Alice sees herself outside asleep. She yells at herself to wake as the cast chasing behind her becomes a colorful collage of abstract marks, fading away as the remaining shapes match the light cutting through the trees she is sleeping under. She wakes to her sister and tries to recount her dream before the two return home toward the sunset. Alice in Wonderland is a film that stands well on its own as a romp and visual spectacle that maintains the absurdity of the source material as well as an orthodox Disney film can, but my appreciation for it is strengthened by viewing it in the context of the era that precedes it. Directly followed by Peter Pan, Alice marks an embrace of childlike adventures through imagination both in tone and text, as well as the evolution of the style being used to depict these stories to great effect. Next up, Peter Pan, 1953. Please go to ghostofjoe.com to see all these essays. You can also find a link to this one directly in the show notes of this upload, and there you will find in-text citations and works cited, and share it with anyone who you think cares a lot about Disney animation. You can also find myself on Twitter at Ghost of Joe, Ghost of J-O. The music used in this audio version is from The Skeleton Dance, a Disney Silly Symphony short. Thank you for listening and reading. Wait, what?